0: Now, turn with me in your Bible to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 22, and then we're going to read on into chapter 2. And I'm going to attempt to recommence during this period, maybe now to the summertime, our exposition in 1 Peter, and we'll deal with another chapter if we can, even the second chapter. 1 Peter. Chapter 1, let's read from verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. If you find the place. Let's read the word of God. Remember, we're reading from the authorized version. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, Unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes, (laughs) <laughs> desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 3. And we pray God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from First Peter chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. And my subject today is entitled How to Grow Spiritually in the Christian Life. The Apostle Peter, I believe, has come to his final exhortation that relates to the subject of a personal, practical holiness. Now remember that holiness of heart and life is a subject that the Apostle Peter introduced and has explained in chapter 1 from verses 13 right through to verse 25. Holiness of heart and life is the overarching theme of that section of the Bible. Chapter 1, you've got the doctrine of salvation. That's been introduced. And then you also have the duty of salvation introduced. And as part of that duty, the sons of God, the children of the Lord, are to strive after a holy life. Remember what he says, But as he which have called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Practical. Personal holiness is not an option for the true child of God. Practical personal holiness is obligatory. Now sadly today in the Christian world, the subject of holiness seems and appears to be outdated. Constantly we are being now informed that holiness is a byproduct of the Puritan era. It's a subject that many feel is marred and controversy. Now let's hear what the objectors and detractors to the doctrine of holiness have to say. Here's their argument. The law of God is not important today. We're not under law but under grace. Now it's true that we who are in Christ are not subject any longer to the condemnation of the law. That is we're not condemned to death by the law. But in Christ, while we're not under its condemnation, we're still under its code. Remember, sin is the transgression of the law. And to break the law of God in thought and word and deed is sin. And if we break the law of God, we need to confess that. We need to repent of it and yearn for the help and the grace of God to do better. Their second objection is that holiness is a form of legalism. They argue that it destroys the doctrine of Christian liberty. They maintain that all Christians are free to live and do as they please. I want to tell you that you're not, if you're a true Christian. Man's chief end, the catechism teaches us, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. True freedom is to live with delight and pleasure for the honor and the glory of the Lord. To have an eye and a heart and a mind and a hand and a foot that pleases Him. To live to hear His well done, good and faithful servant. The third argument and objection to the doctrine of a practical personal holiness is that holiness is outdated for evangelism. The argument goes something like this, that Christians are in the world, and if we're going to win the world, then we must become like the world. We must talk like the world, that we must dress like the world, that we must behave like the world, that we must go to to worldly places. Now these and many others are all what I call a distorted view of holiness. And sadly, these distorted views are openly advocated today by some in the professing church. Now, in contrast, what we want to do is let the Bible speak. You see, the first century church was taught from the scriptures. And they were taught that every born-again believer has a duty to, to live and aspire to live a holy life it's not an optional extra it's was obligatory for every professing christian and this was a subject that every new testament writer gave witness to this was a subject that every new testament writer stressed the importance of listen to just a couple of references. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, Having therefore these promises dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Again, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, he says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which... No man shall see the Lord. Listen to the Apostle John, First John 3 and 1. And every man, that's every believer, that hath this hope in him, the, the sure and certain hope of the Lord's return, purifieth himself even as he is pure. Here's a reference to holiness, to sanctification, to, to living in the light of our Lord's return. And again, you see, we've got the same emphasis in First Peter chapter one, fifteen and 16. But as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And there's a significant need today for God's people to realize that part and parcel of the Christian life is to aspire to live a holy life. Now, let's ask yourself something elementary. What does holiness mean? How can we but grasp the concept and apply it as far as our daily lives are concerned? Well, What I want to do this morning is I want you to try and follow Peter's argument. Look at chapter 2. Let's go to the very first word in your Bible. So look at your Bible. And what's the very first word? Wherefore. So we'll pause there. Literally in view of this. In light of this. On the basis of what he has just said. He's going to say something more. And his last section was chapter 1 verses 22 to 25. And he now draws a conclusion from that. And the conclusion is this. That every born again child of God ought to exhibit their new life in their daily conduct. You see when someone is born again as he's been speaking about in chapter 1. That is become a new creature in Christ. Remember um, therefore if any man be in Christ he's a new creature All things have passed away and all things have become new And all things are of God Whenever the individual has been born again of the Holy Spirit They have been given a new life The life of God has been planted within their soul They have a new heart And that new heart will hunger and thirst and long for God They now have a desire to be obedient to the word of God They've now got a hatred for sin. They now have a yearning to be like Christ. And in this gift of new life, they've got a new love. And because in the implanting of new life in the soul, what's implanted is not only, we could say, the life of God, but a part and parcel of the life of God is the principle of holiness. And you see, that's Peter's line of argument. That's his logical reasoning. If you've been born again by the Word of God and the Spirit of God and have been gifted new life, part of that new life will manifest itself in this vital principle of holiness. And because of that principle of holiness, by the grace of God, you will grow and develop spiritually. You will make spiritual progress. If you're born again, you will grow spiritually. There will be growth. It's impossible not to grow at least in some measure of development. The level and degree of growth will differ from one believer to another, but there will still be growth. So I come to this fundamental question, how can we grow spiritually in the Christian life? And Peter instructs three things. And we're going to look at these three things from these three verses here in First Peter chapter 2. Firstly, in order to grow spiritually, there's the duty <coughs> of discarding sin. Wherefore... In view of this, in light of this, lay aside all malice. You see, the Apostle Peter demands and calls for a personal separation from everything that is sinful in the Christian life. This is a clear command. In this verse, he uses a verb that expresses the imagery of removing old, filthy clothes. Now, you're familiar with working outside, Maybe in the garden and you've got old clothes for working in the garden. Maybe it's being in the garage. Maybe you've lost something and you've had to rummage through the garbage. Well, that's the picture. Clothes that would be of no further use to you. Clothes that are of no longer any fit purpose. You put them off and you lay them aside (coughs) And you have nothing more to do with them. In other words, we think of old, filthy, offensive rags. And there's a getting rid of them. That's the imagery here. Laying aside all malice. Notice the Christian is to put away, lay aside, put off like a garment, all malice. The word all is comprehensive. It allows no exceptions. And in this list of sins, Peter uses the term all three times. Now, what does the word malice mean? (coughs) It means all that's nasty, all that's mean, all that's spiteful. It signifies ill will that originates in our sinful nature. It's a nasty, hurtful, bitter, obstinate, unkind, unloving, mean spirit. And what Peter is saying, well, well, that kind of spirit has no place in the life of a true Christian. It must be laid off. It must be cast to the one side. If you have a desire to inflict pain or harm or injury to a fellow believer or another human being, then realize that that's sin. And if such a, 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 a an evil spirit exists in your life and expresses itself in your relationship toward others then your love for the Lord your love for your neighbor your brother in Christ that love will vanish remember his argument verse 22 if we link it up seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Purity of heart and life and loving one another is coupled together. Notice also that he mentions in the verse all guile. Now what is guile? It's deceit. Peter includes everything that is deceitful. Comprises all falsehood, seduction, craft, slander, treachery, cover-up, not being reliable, not being truthful. Think about deceitful language. You've heard the saying, so-and-so speaks with a forked tongue. Somebody telling you something with the intention to deceive you. Maybe telling you even half a truth. Deliberately intending to mislead Guilty of lies. Remember Elamas the sorcerer, Acts 13 and 10. He was full of deceit, full of trickery, full of mischief, full of all subtlety. You see, deceit can take on the appearance of truth. And the unwary soul could be fooled, could be tricked. And that's what guile is. It has to do with deceit. All or everything that is deceitful. Notice also here, and hypocrisies. I trust you're underlining these. What is hypocrisy? It's someone pretending to be something or someone that they're not. We could think of an actor. We could say someone's acting, putting on a show, giving an impression, but really being guilty of dishonesty. Hypocrisy is just really a twin to guy. Deceit and hypocrisy goes together. He pretends to be something or some one that he's not. Think of a man with two faces. You've heard the saying "so-and-so is two-faced, sweet to your face, but would stab you in the back. Or such and such a person has got two hearts. Or he's got two tongues. He can speak. Smoothly to you. And then he can slice you open uh, at another time. Isn't this something that the Lord Jesus came across whenever he met the Pharisees? Pharisees were members of a religious sect. Devoutly, sincerely religious people. And yet Jesus said of them, Ye hypocrites, you're guilty of play-acting in religion. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In other words, they're only pretending. And how many pretend today, even in the religious community? Think of Absalom, how guilty of hypocrisy he was. Remember, he stood at the gate, everybody that came into Jerusalem that had a problem. And he pretended to be their friend. Pretended to help them. But all the while he was scheming behind backs to steal the hearts of the people unto himself. So that he could make a bid, a rebellious bid for the throne of the kingdom and unseat his father. And hypocrisies. Absalom was guilty of hypocrisy. Notice also here an envice. This is a, a, an open Attitude expressed in a desire to possess what belongs to someone else. In other words, it's someone being jealous. And it can lead to holding a grudge. It really involves a covetous mindset. Notice also here, and all evil speakings. Here's the third all. The tongue that is ready and willing instrument to talk about our neighbor or our brother and sister in Christ behind their back. Guilty of slander, gossiping, defamation of character, spreading a rumor, sowing discord. It all ties in to all evil speakings. Now, Peter doesn't tell the believers to fight against these evils. He says, lay them aside. Cast them off like an old garment. Let's get rid of them. There has to be a separation from sin if we're to grow spiritually. Notice the words in verse 2, that ye may grow thereby. It ties in. Spiritual growth necessitates a separation from such sin. If we're going to make spiritual progress. That, that's the first thing of how to grow spiritually. And it's tied into this subject of holiness. Notice also secondly. Not only the, the duty of discarding sin. But the duty of desiring scripture. Now we come to verse 2. As newborn beings. Desire the sincere milk of the word. That you may grow thereby. What he's saying is as we lay aside these sins of the flesh because we've got new life in Christ, coupled with that new life in Christ, there'll also be a craving for spiritual nourishment. Every born again believer will have a craving and a longing and a desire for the word of God and the God of the word. And that desire will be strong. There'll be an intensity coupled with it. As newborn babes. Now we'll pause there. Let's ask the question is Peter saying and thinking that they're recent converts? Now, they could be recent converts amongst them, but not necessarily. I think it's possible that Peter used the phrase deliberately as newborn babes, and he could have used it figuratively. He wanted them to get in their mind the mental picture of a baby craving for milk. You see, you as parents know how vocal a newborn baby is. Even you who have brothers and sisters that have a little baby. You know that at times during the day and night, the babies cry. Maybe in the middle of the night you wake up, you hear them crying. Maybe when you go home from school, they're crying. And you're sort of thinking to yourself, a waste he would give my headpiece. Babies cry with a loud noise. And babies cry because they're expressing a desire, at least one of the reasons they cry, is to be fed. And everything else has to stop when a baby cries. You could be sleeping and the baby cries and you have to wake up. You could be eating your dinner, you could be in the shower, you could be in a hurry to go somewhere, and then there's a cry from the baby, and what does the cry say? I want fed. And the baby will not stop crying until it's fed. And the baby's not going to be put off with any substitute. And really the baby in the cry is saying, hey you guys, that's the mum and dad, there are others in the family, it's time for my milk. Where is it? And the wee baby fills its lungs and lets a ball and a yell out of it. And it knows if it keeps on crying and keeps making a noise that somewhere, at some stage, somebody will come to meet the need. Newborn babies act as if their life depends on their next feeding. Now Peter wants that metaphor to get into their minds as newborn babes. He could be speaking literally, there could be new converts. He could also be speaking figur- figuratively just to get the imagery into their mind. And he's saying to believers, you believers that are born again, you've got new life in Christ. You must also show and have a longing for the word of God. And he's encouraging every believer to crave the milk of God's word. Now it's good to thank the Lord for our food, but it's also good to thank the Lord for having an appetite and a desire and a craving and a longing for the food. Peter doesn't chide them. He cares for them. And he's saying to them, look, I want you to crave, I want you to desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Because Growing spiritually is not just the duty of discarding sin, but there's also the duty of desiring the scriptures. Notice very quickly here, this is personal. Every believer, he's saying, must have a spiritual desire for the word of God for themselves. Is the word of God precious to you as a born again believer this morning? Is it so precious to you that you desire it just like a baby does the milk? You you realise just as the baby can't be without milk, I can't be without the milk of the word. Isn't it true in all our lives that in times of ill health or in times of sheer discouragement, Or in times when you're not in fellowship with the Lord and maybe your heart is cold and you're backslidden and you don't feel like having a desire or a craving for the Word. Physically, you just can't pick up your Bible and you can't get a Word from God. And you know then there's a problem and you know that there's something wrong. And let's be. Honest enough, there are times like that in all our lives. But let's remember what we are. We're newborn babies. And we've got new life. And therefore coupled with that is the craving for the word. And the absence of the craving tells us we've got a problem. Notice also here it's passionate. He says, desire the sincere milk of the word. The word desire literally means to crave, to to long for with the whole heart. Think of Psalm 1 for a moment, the godly man. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. He's characterized by the negative. What he doesn't do, he's a man who says no to sin. But think of what he does do. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate, that is, takes it into his mind and thinks about it, applies it in his um, thought process. And he doesn't meditate out of duty, but he does it out of delight. He can't get enough of the word. There has to be a panting after the word. Remember, the psalmist said, As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God. Is there a hunger and thirst after the word of God, after God, after righteousness and holiness? See, it's not only personal, but it's passionate, folks. Notice as well, it's persistent. You see, the babies just don't cry once in their life. The moment they born, they're born, they cry. And later on they cry to be fed. And then the next three or four hours they cry to be fed again. And three or four hours after that they cry again. And the next day it's the same thing. In other words, it's continual. This is a daily exercise. This is not a rare occasion. It has to be persistent. Notice also it's particular. It's called the sincere milk of the word. And that word sincere means pure. Uncontaminated. Uncontaminated. Milk that is pure. It denotes the absence of impurity. Denotes the absence of any fraud or or any deceit. You apply that to the baby. You only give the baby pure milk or good milk. You wouldn't give the baby anything that's contaminated. You mothers who know anything about bringing up babies, if you have milk that's left over in a little bottle that you're feeding your baby with, You wouldn't just pick it up and give it to the baby. If it's two or three days sitting there, you'll disregard it because you know that it'll do the baby harm. And this is Paul's picture here. The pure milk of the word. It's the word of God. It's a word from God. It's how God reveals himself to us. God reveals himself, remember, through his word. And as a result of consuming this sincere pure milk of the word there's growth and think of a baby's lack of craving for milk think of no cry from the baby the mother, the parent would be troubled and concerned I've got a problem I've got to get the nurse I've got to get the doctor I've got to get the baby to the hospital See the mummy knows instinctively if there's no cry and craving for milk there's something wrong with the baby. And think about a lack of spiritual milk in your life and mine. A lack of the word is evident that we're not growing as we ought. A lack of the word is evident that we're not growing spiritually someone has rightly said you are what you eat think of people who eat loads and loads of junk food the impact that it has on their body and you think of the, the, the junk food spiritually that we all take into our hearts and our minds the television the radio, the movie stars the pop stars but there's no substitute for God's word it's particular We'll only grow spiritually when we consume the sincere milk of the word. Let me just say this to the children. Children, God's word is like milk. You put milk in your cornflakes, your Rice Krispies, your Cocoa Pops. Maybe at the dinner time you want something to drink. Mommy gives you a glass of milk. And that milk is good for you. It's good for your bones. It's good for your muscles. Not that I have many big muscles it's also good for your brain milk is good for you why? because you'll grow strong you'll be healthy you'll be well Well, well, Peter's saying that the Bible is like milk and just as you drink milk for your bones and your brains and your muscles drink the milk of the word take it into yourself every day to grow spiritually as a Christian notice thirdly here and lastly Not only the the duty of disregarding sin and and the duty of uh, desiring the scriptures, but notice the duty of delighting in the Savior. Now let's come to verse 3, and with this we'll finish. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. There's a great declaration here. I want you to notice this. The Lord is gracious. Gracious. Remember in Psalm 34, and this is where this quotation is from, the psalmist was able to say in Psalm 34, and it's in the verse 8, he makes a tremendous statement there. He says in Psalm 34 and, 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 and verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. And this is a reference to Jehovah. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The word Lord's in capitals. And here's Peter, and he he takes up Psalm 34, verse 8. He takes the words of Psalm 34, verse 8, and he applies it to the Lord Jesus. Because this is a reference to Christ. If so be it, you've tasted that the Lord is gracious to whom coming, and it refers to people coming as unto a living stone. And it's a reference to Christ. Here's evidence of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's no hesitation in calling the Lord Jesus Christ Jehovah. He looks upon him as God in the flesh. Remember he said, when asked, who do men say that I am? He said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter had already tasted how gracious the Lord was him. Remember the time he was backslidden? He denied the Lord with oaths and cursings. Then Jesus looked at him and he wept. After the resurrection, Jesus sent a message, Go tell my disciples and Peter that I go before you in the Galilee. In the shore of the lake of Galilee, he was recommissioned. Lord Jesus told him, Feed my sheep twice, feed my lambs once. And he realized how wonderful his Lord was, how good he is, how gracious he is. There's a great declaration here. Notice, lastly, there's a great appropriation here. If so be you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. What does the word tasted mean? Now, let me just say in closing, it's not a tasting test. It's not to see if you like something. And it's okay. Think of a chef who's made some soup and he he, he puts the spoon in there and he takes a little taste to, to see if it's salty. Or to taste that he's got the recipe just right before he serves it. The word taste here is an experience of all the fullness. That's what it means. If so be you've tasted. Tasted of the Lord in such a way you've begun to experience something of the fullness of God. It also refers to trust. Because when you take something into your mouth... You're trusting that it's good for you. You go to the doctor and he gives you some medicine. It's a bit of a smell. It's rotten. You don't like it. You, you sort of scringe up your face like they're taking lemon juice into your mouth. But it's not rat poison the doctor's given to you. It's good for you. Uh, the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Tied into tasting is this whole element of trust. Isn't that what faith is all about? Hebrews eleven verse six but without faith it's impossible to please him for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and is a rewarder of them that diligently trust him. There's also a reference to taking here. You think of the table spread and set before you and you take what's an offer, and you take it to yourself, and you begin to appropriate that. So so tasting is not just a test, it's involving the fullness of the experience, it involves a trust, it involves a taking. There's an appropriation. And he says this, if so be ye have tasted. Some may not have tasted. There's a division. There are those who have tasted and there are those who have not. I want to ask this morning, have you tasted that the Lord is gracious? Have you tasted the grace of God in salvation? Have you tasted the grace of God in restoration? Maybe you've been cold and backslidden and the Lord has restored you and you're now living and enjoying and walking in fellowship with him and you can testify like Peter, he's a wonderful, gracious God. He didn't leave me where I was at. He came to where I was, applied his grace. And oh, how marvelous that grace is. See, there's the duty of delighting in the Savior. If so be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. These people had tasted how gracious and good the Lord was to them. And Peter knew that. And he knew if they continued to delight in the Savior, having tasted of him, that that would be a spur and a need to grow in grace and to grow spiritually in him. How to grow spiritually? There must be a separation from sin. There must be a craving of spiritual nourishment. There must be a tasting of the Lord in his fullness and delight. May the Lord bless these few verses uh, to our hearts this morning.